thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we are today in um, continuing our study of the book of uh, Exodus <clears throat> in chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there are really three items we, I would like to cover tonight, and I'll see if I can cover all of them. It's a fairly rich chapter, obviously, it's Exodus chapter 12. And these are the last plague, <clears throat> uh, the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, they are obviously interrelated. They all happen together in the same chapter. So let's go through them one by one. First, the last plague. That is, of course, the plague where God sends forth his angel of death, the destroyer, where he kills the firstborn of every um, of everyone who does not have the blood on their on their door, right? Not just the Egyptians. Anybody who did not have that blood would have had their firstborn taken away. And conversely, anyone who had that would have uh, avoided that fate. So there are really two, uh, two ways we can look at it. We can look at it from the Egyptian point of view, and then we can look at it from a biblical point of view. From the Egyptian point of view, when you, when you consider the effect of that plague on them, it was obviously the most severe and the most devastating, both personally and theologically both personally and theologically. It wasn't just a devastation that, uh, that touched them on a personal level, but it is the existential, their, their existential view of the world, their understanding of the order of the world that was shaken and fundamentally shaken. Um, and that is because, um, number one, the order, the Egyptian order was structured around Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was considered to be a god, and the succession of uh, Pharaoh would happen through his firstborn. Remember when we saw in Genesis that when Noah recognized what Ham had, uh, what uh, yeah, what Ham had done, he didn't curse Ham; he cursed the son of Ham, Canaan. And the reason is, when you curse someone, you only curse that person. But when you curse their son, you're actually cursing the entire dynasty. So the effect is far more raging. It is uh, raging. It is devastating to effectively put an end to a dynasty. It isn't just an end to a dynasty because you might say dynasties come and go. So all right, this one is leaving. Another one will show up. With a change of dynasty, you really have a complete change of order. In back then, politics and religion 
were extremely tightly bound together so that the end of that dynasty meant also, in a sense, the defeat of the gods who were protecting the dynasty. The dynasty was an expression, a material representation of the power of this particular um, god. So, for instance, to bring it some closer home, it would be what the um, Muslim world went through when the Ottoman Empire came to an end. Because Islam, by its very nature, is a religious political system where the two are, are almost inseparable. And the whole idea in Islam is to have what is called the Muslim nation. The notions of countries, as we understand them in the West, is foreign to Islam. What is germane to Islam is the notion of a nation, a Muslim nation. And with the Ottoman Empire, for about 500 years, at least for the Sunni, you could look east, west, north, and south, and you saw one Muslim nation. When that fell, it was a, a huge crisis of which Islam has not yet recovered. Because today in Islam, there isn't one unified voice that speaks in the name of all Muslims. You have competing voices. Traditionally, it's always been Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey being the three competing voices in Sunni Islam. And they don't speak politically in the same voice. They don't speak religiously in the same voice. Therefore, it's that kind of uh, impact that would be um, tremendous. Here in the United States, it would be, let's say, if in, in um, three months from now, the dollar is devaluated to where you need a million dollars to buy chewing gum. And you can imagine the rippling effect this could have on the lives of so many people. It is that type of effect that had hit the Egyptians when their firstborn were killed. Hmm? It was huge. So God wasn't just going for a, um, uh, for a punishment that would be personal. It was collective. That's the key here. Because when we hear about the firstborn, we immediately focus on ourselves, our own family. But that was a collective punishment. And it was extremely severe. It is interesting. Obviously, we don't really know which Pharaoh it is because uh, Scripture does not name Pharaoh. However, we do know that uh, there is one Egyptian king whose name is Tutmosis IV. Actually, Tutmosis, because Moses, as I had pointed out to you, had, has two origins, one Egyptian and one Hebrew. And so the Fourth wrote that he was not the eldest son. In one of his own inscriptions, he recounted how the kingship was promised to him by the gods, which suggests that Tutmosis was not his father's heir apparent, but had obtained the throne through an unforeseen turn of fate, such as the premature death of an elder brother. Right? So there are slight indications. Now, the reason why you will not find in Egypt a real clear indication of what had happened is because... As you know, history is always written by the victorious. So in Egypt, after the departure of the Jews, they would never have written it in such a way as to reflect what had happened in uh, sincerity. You don't see that anywhere. So for instance, here in the West, one prevalent myth that had uh, endured throughout the ages is the notion that the Phoenicians were... Uh, sacrificing their children by droves to uh, the, the god Baal. And what is interesting about that is uh, when you actually go and then look at the way the Phoenicians lived, by and large, 
if you consider, for instance, the, writes, the writings of the Greeks or the Egyptians or anyone who actually may, did commerce with them, nobody mentions that uh, habit or at least does not put the emphasis on it. It is only done in a great emphasis by the Romans after the war with Carthage. And that had therefore perjured. It had remained so throughout the ages. Closer to us, the notion that you have theologians who are debating how many angels can stand on the head of a, uh, um, a needle or a pin of a needle. How many of you have heard this? Anybody's heard this? Yes? They're very common in France. It's actually used constantly, right? Do you know where the, the origin of this come from? That's a prefabrication. It's an invention of uh, Luther and the Protestant Reformation. He actually said it sarcastically because he was deriding the Catholic theology. And it turned into, it became a standard saying in many countries. Another expression you may be familiar with. How many know the expression hocus pocus? Yeah? Did you know that hocus pocus actually comes from the Latin mass? And it was again used by Luther to deride the mass? Right? So many of these expressions, we use them today, they're stuck in us because of what had happened before, but in very, very deformed ways. So likewise, in Egypt, this whole event would never have been told as we've seen it. In fact, look at Turkey today. It is still um, rejecting the notion that they've actually committed the pogrom against the Armenians. They still are living in a complete denial of the, the, the event. Right? And they prefect we get another myth to recount what had happened. It had nothing to do with reality. It's so hard for them to even begin to see it. Okay, the way we treated here the Indians, for instance. We prefabricated stories on that. It took some time to realize this. Or even the fact that we still don't admit that the first act of mass terrorism was committed by the United States when we threw two atomic bombs on cities full of civilians with the specific intent of terrorizing them. But we don't see that kind of action on equal footing with what we consider today terror. Because we write history. It is a common theme. I am not deriding the United States. It's just you take the, the history of the Hebrews about their own kings apart from scripture. They have a separate set of books that talk about their own kings. And it's very flowery and very glorious. You read the history of the kings in the book of Kings and it's a completely different story. That's why scripture is so remarkable. It is so remarkable because it doesn't try to paint a pretty picture where there is no pretty picture. It tells you the truth. Okay, that's why you will, if you hear people say, well, this also never happened because you look at the Egyptians, never recorded it. Right. How many people you think in a family where, where they have a traumatic event? Or how many people who have had a traumatic event when they were young, they were a kid, went through a war or had, have been abused in one of many ways, do you think spend their time when they're older talking about it? What do we do? We cover up. We hide. We pretend, pretend it isn't there. We don't want to face it when we talk about it, right? You know the expression, the elephant in the room, right? In corporate America today, we have the same thing. We have a big problem, but let's talk about it. We call it the elephant in the room, the big elephant in the room. It's big there. It's right there, but we pretend it's not there. It's a common thing about a human being to cover up, right? It's only in Scripture and with the coming of Christ that truth is revealed because truth is a person, We've seen him, and we want to imitate him, and therefore we seek the truth. Right? 
So from, their, from, from the perspective of the Egyptian, it was a traumatic event that completely put an end to their political order. And we have to understand that this is how Jesus works. It wasn't that he hated the Egyptians. And I've told you last time, it was actually showing them mercy because he was bringing them to the truth. He acts with every political system, every family, every individual in exactly the same way because he wants to bring them to the truth. And the truth will set them free. And oftentimes, we get so tied up with our own toys, our own views of the things, that he really has to take drastic action to pull, them, to pull those, those things away from us and make us see the reality as it is. Hmm? And we'll see some quotations later. So, that's essentially how it would have seen by the Egyptian. And it's important to have this perspective because oftentimes, we are the Egyptians. In our own behavior towards others, oftentimes we are the Egyptians. You understand? Often, if you ask yourself, where do I stand here? Where would I have been had I been amongst the uh, living at the time? Would I have been the Egyptian or the Jew? Which of these two would I have been on? And it takes some honesty and forethought to really think it through, and you get the answer in your life today. When do you act like the Pharaoh? When you harden your heart? And when do you actually act like Moses? having to carry somebody else's burden, and when do you act like a follower? Somebody tells you to do something, and you actually do it. Right? Okay. Now let's look at it from the biblical point of view. The plague is a central, is, is, is absolutely central to God's further dealings with Israel. The reason why this has happened, from a biblical standpoint, is that God wanted to create a new liturgical order, a new liturgical order. So from an Egyptian standpoint, it was the end to an empire that was persecuting his people. From the perspective of the, the, the Jews, it was actually the institution of a new order, but it is not an economic order. It is not a political order. It is not a military order. It is a liturgical order. The whole purpose of the, the reason why the story of the plague is intertwined with the Passover is precisely because through it, God is beginning to institute a new liturgical order, which is a foreshadowing to the eternal liturgical order, the one we live in, the one that will never pass away. Right? And you notice how in, in God's eyes, the uh, political events and economic events are all there for a purpose. And the purpose is to bring us back to the liturgy. Hmm? To bring us back to the liturgy. So he then required of them to memori memorialize the last plague in the Passover celebration. You notice how the Passover was a remembrance, a constant remembrance of what God did and did not do. He freed them from the bondage of from the bondage of Egypt, and he prevented the destroyer from entering their homes. Those are the two things: the positive and the negative. He freed them and he prevented. Those were done in the Passover, and he wanted them to memorialize that, to remember that, and teach that to their to the newer generations. And do you think they did it? Do you think it was done according to God's plan? No, it wasn't. 
and, and I will hint at that a little later. Furthermore, when he did that, God claimed the firstborn to himself. In essence, he said this, and this is, I have to, you have to absolutely understand that, he, there was no neutral ground. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to go after the firstborn of the Egyptians and kill them, and that's it. He basically said, either I kill that firstborn, or if I don't kill that firstborn, it means that that firstborn is mine. Those are the two choices. He claimed the firstborn for himself, and you will see that later. And that would be something really interesting about, we'll say quite a bit about that, about the, this business of the firstborn. Remember, we've always talked in Genesis about the firstborn, right? We said Genesis is the failure of the firstborn. Every time you see the firstborn, you know we're going to crash, right? So what is God doing now? He's going to claim that firstborn to himself. For what purpose? For the purpose of catechesis, for the purpose of liturgy, for the purpose of a a priestly order for the purpose of teaching them, the firstborn, his ways. Yeah? That was the purpose. So, this is how you see this whole connection between Genesis coming into Exodus and then moving forward. Genesis is a story where if you're reading it with the, having known, having the, the, the Pentateuch as your backdrop, you've seen what happened after? You know the whole story. So you go back to Genesis and realize, whoa, look at that. He failed, and he flailed, and he fumbled, and he fumbled, and he failed. And these are the best of the best. I have, you know, the, the galleries of the best. Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, on and on, Moses, and later on, David. And you're thinking through, and you say, whoa, if those guys weren't able to do it, what does that suggest about me? What does that tell says about me. I'm not going to be able to do it either. You understand? This fundamental realization that I can't do it. I just can't. No matter how I try on my own, I can't. And here, unfortunately, today, we've forgotten that. And you see how, how, how much of a poison this notion that everybody goes to heaven is? Because if you believe, not necessarily with reason, but with your behavior, that everybody goes to heaven, what does that imply? It implies you're going to heaven. And furthermore, what does it imply? It implies that you go to heaven because you're a good person. Right? And so you think, I'm, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I beat nobody. I haven't killed anyone. I'm honest. I'm good, so I'm going to heaven. That's it. This is how they thought. This is how we think. Right? But a true meditation on Scripture makes you realize, wait a minute, Abraham was, by my standard, he was mighty good. And Jacob was not bad either. And Isaac, and David, and this, and then the other. And it didn't, it didn't look like God was you know, absolutely thrilled with their behavior. So therefore, what does it say about me? Yeah? So the teaching that God wanted to impart upon them in this liturgical order by instituting the Passover is to remind them, you were slaves, remember? And while you were slaves, you weren't able to get out of there. I had to come and get you out. You couldn't. Remember that. Then I came. And I got you out. And I led you. 
and I gave you f- food in the, in, the, in the desert. I gave you the manna. And I led you back to the promised land. And I was your God. So what do you think you should be saying? What are the two magic words? So thank you and please. Thank you and please. Right? This notion of the centrality of God in your own life. Thank you, Lord. Please, Lord. Right? That's what God is trying to do. He's teaching them His ways. And we'll see where this is going to go. All right. God wanted truly to make them understand how powerless they were and how powerful He is. So, in order to do that, He delayed their departure until Pharaoh changes his heart and then He came after them with His armies. So you can imagine the, the, the picture, imagine the scene, if you will, where you're standing by the sea and pretty much nobody knows how to swim. There are no boats. And you have a raging army coming at you. What, what would you, what go through your mind if you were in a position like this? What would go through your mind? Right? Well, I'll tell you what would go through your mind. This is going through your mind right now. I mean, you're looking at the world the way it is, and you're looking at what is going on, and those crazy liberals, and this and that and the other, and Islam. And that's what's going through your mind. No different. No different. God led them to that spot. He explicitly led them to that spot. Get it? They didn't get there by mistake. They didn't get there because they didn't know where they were going. God led them there. So what was He trying to do? Again, reminding them, this is who you are, a creature. Can't do nothing without me. And now let me show you who I am. And let me show what I can do for you. Most of us tend to focus on the first aspect. Right? Not the second. Especially when the clouds are growing around us and we see massacres in Iraq and we know what's going to happen to the Christians over there and then all the Middle East and even here, the persecutions. and this. You, so what happens in your heart? What should be happening in your heart when you see these mounting dark clouds? What should be the response? How did Jesus tell us to respond? Remember, it's not me. It's what He told us. No, He said something else before prayers. What did He say? Rejoice and be glad. Yeah, true, pick up your cross, but rejoice and be glad. The beatitude. Right? And when those persecute you in, in my name and say false things against you in my name, rejoice and be glad. Can you rejoice and be glad right now? How many of you are rejoicing and are glad? Good, 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 good. That's how it's supposed to be. It's supernatural joy. You get it? We can't rejoice on our own. Back to what I was saying earlier. Try you might, you can't. The physical reality that is facing you is anything but rejoice, you know, cause to rejoice. So therefore, you're rejoicing in hope. You're rejoicing in something you can't see. You're not rejoicing because you see something that is the source of your joy. You understand? If you win the lottery, yeah, you rejoice because you have something that makes you happy. You have tangible sign of happiness in your hand. Yeah? That is natural 
rejoicing. It is fleeting. It passes away. Here, he's asking us to rejoice not on account of a thing that we have, on account of a faith he gifted us. You rejoice in your faith because that is the sure sign of God's presence in your life. And if God is with you, who can be against? Right? That implies that you've given your life completely to God and you do not worry about what is going to happen. You see? That's the key. So then Moses stretches his hand and they cross and he stretches his hand again and the Egyptians are drowned. Right? So again, two events. Salvation, condemnation. You always see this covenant at work. The mechanics of the covenant should begin to sound more and more familiar to you. You should be able to see it more and more clearly. And just as he did it back then, he does it today. No different. Remember, God is outside of time. There isn't a past, a present, and a future. There is only the now. And God is unchangeable. He didn't do something back then that he repented from or stopped doing today. He is the same. Yes, we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament, but both of these are simply a manifestation of his mercy. His mercy is always the same, never changes. We've learned something about him in time, but he is always the same. Yeah? And what is really key, if you go back and read the text, you will see that the narrative is highlighting one fact. And that is, I'm going to be out of battery soon. No, just kidding. He's, he's highlighting the following fact. There is a change in attitude among the Israelites from unbelief and fear in the face of the Egyptians. And you see that in 14, 10, and 12. To faith and trust in the light of the Lord's deliverance in 14.31. Hmm? The interesting thing about that, I mean, number one, this is great, because they're, they're expressing their faith in God. Because remember, when they were standing right there at the edge of the water, there was no God standing next to them. There was nobody. There was just them. All right, so God, they had to really trust Moses and have faith in Moses to be willing to go and then stand there. And then God showed, his, showed forth his, his, his uh, strength and mercy, and then that increased their faith. And I told you, signs are always for believers, because they are there to increase your faith and help you to believe more. And obviously, Jesus sets a, a, the bar higher for us when he resurrected Lazarus, because he did his prayer of thanksgiving before he resurrected him, not after so he actually said, thank you, before the fact. Right? And that's how we should be. We, we, we say, thank you, before it happens. This is what he's asking. This, essentially, this is how he's asking us to be. To always realize that if we have him, we have everything. And that's the key. That's the key in our Christian belief. So, the theological implication of these events is that we see a passage from sin and death into life. For the Israelites, it was obviously communal and temporary. So when, when they started reflecting on what was going, what is happening to them afterwards, they realized that God brought them out of bondage into freedom on the, on the physical plane, 
But then when you started thinking more about that, you realized that God is really about taking us out of bondage into freedom. And that's why when Jesus came, the, the attitude was, he, the Messiah will come to free us from the Romans, just as Moses freed us from the Egyptians. There was no understanding that the events that happened with Moses were themselves assigned to a much greater reality. To a much greater reality. And in Catholic theology, freedom is one of three things. And I've told you this before. There are the, the, fundamentally, a moral behavior rests on three legs. And these are freedom, responsibility, and truth. Freedom, responsibility, and truth. You need all three of them to act, in a, uh, to act according to right reason. Freedom isn't leniency. Freedom isn't um, licentiousness. Having license to do whatever I want. That is not freedom. That is licentiousness. Freedom isn't the right to do whatever I please. Freedom is freedom from something. Not freedom to do something. And that is freedom from sin. That's what true freedom is. Responsibility is the recognition of the role that I play. And the importance of the role that I play. In order for me to be free, I must be responsible. And there can be no responsibility, no freedom, unless I have the truth. Because the truth structures my conscience to think according to right reason. It's when I have all three, can I be truly morally upright. And today, we've thrown all three out of the window, replaced them with less sentences. I'll do whatever I want, and as long as I don't bother anybody, nobody has anything to say. You can't do that, you can't think this way, if you truly want to follow Christ. It doesn't work that way. Let's move on now to the Passover, per se. The meaning of the Passover. The, there is a detailed account of the events surrounding the night on which the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. And the, as I said, the occasion was so significant that they gave it the name Passover. The feast of the Passover was inaugurated to commemorate the birth of the nation of Israel. So on a plain, natural uh, level, it is the birth of the nation of Israel. It is also a new beginning, which is seen in the inauguration of a new calendar, because God tells them this is the, when the year is going to, going to start. I'll, I'll, I'll have more to say about that. So inauguration of new calendars in ancient times meant a new dynasty, always. So when a new dynasty begins, you start counting from the, um, from the foundation of that new dynasty. And when another one comes, you start doing the same. We've been effectively counting since the institution of the new and latest and greatest and the only eternal dynasty there is, the Catholic Church. That we have never counted through, we have never gone through this, but the ancients have gone through this many, many times. All right. Now, before I get into the details of the Passover, I'm going to tell you a couple of things about it, generally speaking. In the Old Testament, there are five particular Passovers beside the original one. So there are essentially six Passovers, Passover celebrations noted in the Old Testament, and one in the New, totaling seven. So in all of Scripture, there are seven Passovers which have been noted. And these are 
the first one we just talked about, which is the, I thought I had it, here we go. The initial Passover in Egypt, the night when they were freed. The second, they kept in the wilderness, and we see that in Numbers chapter 9. The third, when Joshua led Israel through the Jordan and into the promised land during the time of the Passover feast in Joshua 4, 19. The fourth is the restoration, in the restoration of Israel by King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 30. The fifth under King Josiah, 2 Chronicles 35. The sixth, the return of Israel from captivity in Babylon in the book of Ezra, chapter 6, verse 19. And the seventh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem amid a great crowd of people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in John 12, 1 through 12. Okay, so all these Passovers were always connected with freedom, liberation, return, right? including the one from Jesus, including the one that Jesus celebrated. That's why he had said, I had desired, was such a great desire to celebrate this Passover, because he knew that with it, he was going to bring the meaning of the Passover to its fullness. Because up until now, it was still a symbol. It hasn't become a sacrament. But once he instituted the Passover in his own blood and his own flesh, it ceased to be a symbol and it became a sacrament. Something that bears life in and of itself as it points towards life. Um, There are obviously many, many parallels between the Passover and the the initial Passover and the one that uh, Jesus instituted. So the lamb had to be a male, uh, three years old, without blemish. Correspondingly, Jesus was a male without blemish. Uh, You had to to keep the lamb for four days before sacrificing him. Jesus was kept in jail uh, for a certain period of time before he was actually sacrificed. You had to eat the lamb cooked. You could not eat it raw. Why? Because what fire does to the meat, it changes, it, it, it transforms the meat into something else. Right? Likewise, you can't eat bread and drink wine. You must receive the body and blood of our Lord. They are transformed into something utterly different. By the way, in order for the uh, Jews to be saved through the Passover, they had to eat the meat. There was no choice. So if among them there was a vegetarian who said, well, you know, I'm I'm a vegetarian. I don't believe in killing the animals. I'm not going to eat this. He'd be dead. You had to eat the meat. There was no choice. Likewise, in order to reach heaven, you have to eat the flesh of the Son of Man. John chapter 6. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Yeah? And again, obviously, you can't just go take communion if you're in a state of mortal sin and hope you're going to have life in you. You won't. You have to be in the state of grace. Hence, the necessity to go to confession. All right. So there are many, many parallels. And you can see that with Christian eyes, you go back and look at the Passover, you see that God was already establishing that Passover, the real one, way back when, so that when the Jews of his time, who have had time to reflect over Scripture, 
would see him, they would recognize him. And indeed, so did John the Baptist, the first one to immediately see it. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He, this is, this is the, the, the theology of St. John the Baptist, who was a hermit, lived in the desert. And when he saw Jesus, he immediately made the contact back with the institution of the Passover, recognized him for who he was, and he recognized the real meaning of the Passover, freedom from sin, right? Who takes away the sin of the world, which is absolutely, absolutely revolutionary, because up until now, they were completely concerned and focused with Israel. And it will take this other genius, St. Paul, to bring, really bring to everybody's attention and understanding that all of the old order was a preparation for the real one, and that is the one where Gentile and Jews both are invited to the table of the Lord. Right? That took the working of St. Paul, who understood what God was trying to do, and through him, he informed his theology. Not that St. Peter didn't see it or St. James, but it was really through St. Paul that his whole theology of the church was expounded. So I'm, I always chuckle when I hear the Protestant using St. Paul, because he is one of the greatest theologians of the church. Right? And I'm sure he was absolutely, um, let's just say, uh, surprised when they see how they use his words, uh, because they fundamentally misunderstand the, the covenant. All right. Now, in, the, in connection to the Passover, the Passover isn't separate from the next thing that happens after, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You have the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread connected together. And the key thing about the Feast of Unleavened Bread is when God claims the firstborn to himself. Right? So that's something we're going to, um, again, go over and understand. Now, with the Passover, God gave a set of commands and prohibitions. There were seven commands given, and there were a number of prohibitions. About 11, I believe. No, 13. So the commands... There are about 550 commands in all of the book of uh, uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, command 55 in Exodus 12.6, You shall slaughter the Passover lamb on the 14th of Nisan until the 14th day of the month, and then all the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. So you, on the 1st of the month, you bring over the, the you, you prepare. On the 10th, you bring the lamb. You wait four days, you slaughter it on the 14th at twilight, which is officially the beginning of the 15th day, and then you eat the lamb. You shall eat the, the, the lamb roasted on the night of the 15th of Nisan, according to the instructions, so in your, ho- in your house, with matzo upon the bitter herbs, so flatbread, bitter herbs. And they shall eat the meat in that night, roasted with fire and matzo upon the bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So it wasn't supposed to be a festive uh, dish. It wasn't supposed to be a dish of rejoicing because it was supposed to be eaten with bitter herbs. Okay? This is how he wanted it, precisely to remind them, number one, uh, uh, the bitter herbs were supposed to remind them of the, bitter, the bitterness of slavery from which God saved them. And uh, the fact that they had to eat, them, eat it standing reminded them of the haste with which they left Egypt. Right? But beyond that, God is trying to tell us, when you receive the Eucharist, do not expect to taste Something different. It isn't about taste. I'm not giving you a, um, a meal that you're going to savor with your senses. Hmm? And receive the Eucharist 
with haste. Meaning what? You're passing by. You're a pilgrim. You don't know if you're going to live tomorrow. Don't receive it as if you're settled here. You're passing by. You're a pilgrim. You're here tomorrow. You're gone. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. Always remember that. Now, command 156. Remove all leaven on the 14th of Nisan. On the first day, you shall remove the leaven from your house. And command 159. Rest on the first day of Passover. On the first day that they, on the first day, hold the sacred convocation. And command 160. Rest on the seventh day of Passover. Right? So again, it's the reminiscent of the creation. In, seven, in six days, God created the world. On the seventh, he rested. So it's a new creation in which we participate and we rest with God because it is the conclusion of that creation. Likewise, the first day is a Sunday. The seventh day is another Sunday. Right? So from one Sunday to the other, you are supposed to rest. You're supposed to rest. So if as a family, you today are not focused on family activities on Sunday, if you don't protect your children from going here and there and over the place, if you're sitting down and just watching, I don't know, something you enjoy on TV without caring for your family, you're not being, you're not doing what is right in the, in the eyes of God. You're not fulfilling your duties on Sunday. So not only do you must you go to Mass, but it's not enough. You can't just go to Mass and go afterwards act like pagans. You must focus on family activities. And you must rest in the Lord by doing things which are good for the entire family. That is absolutely essential. So my house, after, after uh, we finish Mass, we go home and we have a brunch or a lunch where everybody sits around the table. And I ask the kids, one by one, what was the readings about? What did you understand? What did the priest say? And it, it, they've learned now that they really have to focus on the reading because we forget. We listen and we go out and we've forgotten what was... What we, so they really have to focus on that. And then we have a conversation around this. What was meant? What was intended? What is the purpose? And after that, we do something completely surrounding the family. That this is very important to really celebrate the Lord. This is what He intends for us to do. That's how He blesses you. Okay? The, the sixth command was on eating mats, so that flat bread we talked about. And the, the really interesting one is 153, command one, the 153rd command in Exodus 12, 2, where the Lord says, Sanctify and can calculate the months of the year for the worship of God. This month shall be to you the beginning of the months. And that month was Abib, Nisan, March, April. That's when the year was supposed to begin. Right? Sanctify it. Now, in the Eastern liturgies, we've kept that. So, quiz, quick quiz. When does the liturgical year begin in, in, the, Eastern, in the Eastern calendar? September 14th. Anybody else wants to... These days, October. The actual beginning of the um, um, of the liturgical year is November first. Right, it closes October thirtieth with the feast of Christ the King, and the beginning of the year is November the first. And and the initial season, at least in the Maronite liturgy, is called what? This anybody knows? What the seasons of the 
church. Interesting enough. The first season is the season of the church. And it consists pretty much of two Sundays, which are what? The consecration of the church, and then the consecration of the sanctification of the faithful. Consecration of the church. You're supposed to reconsecrate the church and the sanctification of the faithful. Where do we get that from? Right here. From from this command. So, when you get closer to the beginning of the liturgical year, you're supposed to be in the mindset of consecration and renewal. It isn't just about the church. It's about you. And this is one of the parts where we've let go of one of God's command to pass on those traditions down the, the generations for all our children to know what to do. We've let go of this. We have not done what we were supposed to do. We have sinned before the Lord because we have not taught our children the importance of these things and their meaning. For the most part, we've become cultural Catholics. We're Catholic by culture. But we don't know why we believe what we believe. We don't understand the celebration of the liturgy. We don't know why the priest is doing what he's doing. But we just go through it because, hey, you got to do it. And that's it. And this is how we give glory to God. Good luck with that. You understand? The consecration of the church isn't just about the church. It's about us as well. So God established this, and he told them, this will be the beginning of the month for you. He established this as an indication that he had every intention of creating a new order, a new dynasty, the one that will never go away. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, not to mean that my kingdom has nothing to do with this world, but precisely my kingdom is the only one that can govern this world because nothing in this world, nothing in this world can destroy my kingdom. If the root, if the strength of a kingdom is not in this world, how can this world destroy it? It can't. Therefore, that is the only kingdom that will remain until the end of the world. You understand? He didn't mean it to say, my kingdom is not of this world, therefore, don't worry about what's going on here. It doesn't matter. No, 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 it's the other way around. That's why you should matter a lot. You should be, be because you are the ones who can actually effect the change. That's what he meant. All right. The prohibitions are interesting. There are four about the lamb. One, you, you shall not eat the Passover lamb raw or boiled. It must be roasted. Why is God so interested? Is it, what is this? God, the grand chef? I mean, is this giving them a particular recipe? Because that's the heavenly way you, you eat lamb in heaven? Can't boil it? Why is he being so specific? It must be roasted. Fire, exactly. Fire. What is the fire? What is fire a symbol of? Say it again. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So what turns the meat into something edible? The Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus, in in the gospel, says flesh on its own has no, um, no power, no value. It is the Spirit that gives life. That's what he meant. But when the flesh is united to the Spirit, it becomes life-bearing. Yeah? Yeah. That's why. You see how specific he was? Because he already had in mind the liturgy. Okay. The meat of the Passover must not be left till morning. Do not leave any of it till morning. 
You eat it only one night. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the Orthodox rile us. And they will not keep the Eucharist. There is no tabernacle in Orthodox churches. You do not keep it till morning. What are you Catholics doing keeping this till morning? You understand where it goes back to? That is why in Catholic theology it is alright not to keep uh, the, the host till morning. But you can't tell us we cannot keep it at all. Because there is a fundamental difference between the two. But you've got to understand where it's coming from. Alright. One must not break the bone of the Passover lamb. Do not break any of his bones. God, the sensitive. Kill the lamb, but don't break the bone. Okay. Why is he asking that none of his bones be broken? Exactly. This is what St. John himself said, right? Not one of his bones were broken. You see how the complete foreshadowing is happening here? Directed by God. You see how God has always been in... Even back then, he already knew the end game. All right. One must not carry the meat of the Passover lamb outside the house where it is being eaten. Take none of the meat outside the house. What does that mean? What is the house today? The house of God. Right here. What does it mean to take not the meat outside the house? Don't desecrate it. And what else? Yeah, yeah, but why, wouldn't you, why, why, why would you be taking it outside the house? Shared with us. Exactly. 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 You can't just invite anybody willy-nilly to the meal of the Lord. You can't just do that. You can't say to Protestant, come and share the meal with us. It's okay. No, it isn't. You can't do that. No yeast must be found in your house during the celebration of the Passover. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. The first seven days is to take out the yeast. What was the yeast a symbol of? It's a dual symbol, actually. But in specific instance, it is a symbol of what? Sin and the devil. Because the devil acted as a yeast in Eve's ear. Right? Both. So therefore you must go through a cleansing process. This is, and God said for seven days. Look how seriously he took that. We don't have to now spend seven days cleaning our homes to remove yeast from it. What do we have to do? Go to confession. Wait for 15 minutes maybe or something like that. Yes, five, min- five minutes in confessional, maybe ten minutes doing penance, and we're done. Okay? But that's, he insists on that. You shall not eat yeast on the day of the Passover. What does that mean? Don't sin before you receive communion. Get it? The church didn't make, those, make up these rules because, you know, there was a bunch of cardinals thinking, one of these days, we're going to rule, um, we're going to rule over... Um, um, the casinos. So let's come up with a bunch of rules and control everybody. All right? The church wasn't thinking about Las Vegas when it came with those rules. They were given. What the church did is said, all right, these all rules are given when God spoke to the, Hebrew, to the Hebrews. How are these applying to us today? Oh, this is how we, Just as we are seeing it, they saw it. The, church, the, the, the fathers of the church saw the same thing. You understand? Okay, no yeast must be seen during the celebration of the Passover. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. What does that mean now? So you're not supposed to commit sin before you come to Mass, but what else when you come into Mass? Do not act in a sinful fashion. More importantly, act 
in a holy fashion. So what does that mean about the dress code? And I no, I'm not just singling the women here. I'm also talking to the guys. Okay? We live in California. We go to Mass in flip-flops. We go to Mass in jeans. We go to Mass with a wrinkled shirt. We go to Mass with hair undone. We go to Mass without having shaven first. We go to Mass not in, a, in, a, in fashions that are not presentable. And then we allow our women to come to Mass as if they're coming to some sort of a pagan fashion show. I mean, if God is going down to this, these nitty-gritty little detail, what do you think He's doing that? You think it's not important? So there were four prohibitions about the lamb and four prohibitions about the yeast. Now, you shall not work on the first day of Passover. On the first day, do not work at all on these days. Now, if you are, I don't know, a doctor, a nurse, if you are a policeman, a fireman, you have essential duties to others, you need to work. You work. Right? If you're working for a company who doesn't care about Sunday and you're forced to work to make sure your, your family is fed, you work. If you have your own business and you're working on Sunday, you have some thinking to do. You shall not work on the seventh day of Passover. On the seventh day, do not work at all on these days. Likewise, those are Sundays. A foreigner must not be allowed to eat the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Can't be clearer than that. Do you think that God, when He gave this prohibition over meat cooked by fire, do you somehow think it's not going to apply for the body and buds, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ? An alien must not be allowed to eat the Passover, but a temporary resident, a hired worker, may not eat of it. You can't. You're either part of it or you're not. Right? An uncircumcised person must not be allowed to eat the Passover. What does that mean? Someone who's not baptized. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part. What does that mean? It means when you become a full member of the Catholic Church, then you're allowed to eat. So particularly if you have a wedding, you're preparing for a wedding, and you're inviting friends who are not Catholic, it is your duty and the duty of your priest and the celebrant of the Mass to say it very clearly and explicitly and charitably at the time of the, of the of, uh, communion. Only Catholics can come forward and receive communion. This must be said. Right? Okay. So, the purpose of the Passover was to institute a new order, but it needed to be passed on down the generations. So, God wanted the people to remember what He had done for them, how He saved them. So that when the children would see the feast and they would ask, what does this mean? The parents could tell them of God's grace and love. All right? Here is one huge mistake that happened in modern times. Huge. And it's perpetuated. Parents have gone into this false understanding that the duty of teaching their children is that of teachers. They think the duty of having the children taught is that of teachers. By which I mean that they think 
when they stand before the Lord, the Lord will not ask them, how have you taught my children? They think they're exonerated from this question because they can say, hey, why are you asking me as the teachers? Ah, the church is not, did you know the church is not the primary educator of your children? That's not the role of the church. The church is not in the business of educating children. The church is in the business of educating grown-ups who are then supposed to educate their children. Translation, fathers, if in your homes you have not opened scripture, you're not reading scripture, you're not trying to understand scripture, if you've never asked your children about scripture, if you never taught about them, showed them how to pray, took them to, to Mass, knelt before, showed them all of this, how are you educating your children about the faith? That is your holy and sacred duty. You, fathers, have that duty first, before the mothers. Why? Because I'm just chauvinistic, you know? I'm patriarchal. Never mind, I have six girls, but I'm just... Is that it? Okay. What are you supposed to represent in the family? No, no, not the priest. Pardon? Not Jesus. God the Father. God the, what, your role in the family is to teach them about what? The love of God the Father. That's what you're there for. So when they look at you and they think of God the Father, your hope and prayer should be they would want to go to God the Father. If a child has been abused by a father, then that child has a huge, huge obstacle to go to, to cross when it comes to loving God, whether it's God the Father or Jesus. When a child has a problem with masculinity, it's very difficult for him to connect to God the Father or God the Son. Thankfully, our Lord knew this and made allowance by giving us his mother. But fundamentally, this is our role as, as fathers. The role of the mother is to teach them what? The love of what? Not the love of God, no. Primarily, the love of the church. The love of the church. The mother is there to teach the children the love of the church. But if she herself does not know the nature of the church, if she herself does not love the church and is not devoted to the church, how can she pass on what she does not have? We need both. We need to love God, right? But we also need the means to get to Him. The father is supposed to say to the kids, look, you think I'm good with all my problems? You ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till you meet God the Father. Then you'll know what good is good. And the mother is to say, you want to go to God the Father? Let me show you how. Let me guide you. Let me lead you. And if you think I'm good, wait till you meet God. This is how a family is supposed to work. You understand? That's how it's supposed to work. But how can it work this way? When the father becomes an alcoholic and the mother becomes not an alcoholic, becomes a workaholic, and the mother is a workaholic, and both of them are working outside, and they give their kids to the daycare, and they give their kids to the educators, and the TV, and the friends, and the peer pressure, and somehow, by some sort of incredible miracle, the kids end up being turned Catholic? Who are you kidding? 
Were you kidding? So the interesting thing is that, um, unfortunately, after Israel settled in the land, the Passover was not always celebrated as it should have been. Translation, many of the Jews simply didn't celebrate the Passover. Some of the kings just forgot about it, and they neglected it completely. Right? Well, why should I go to Mass every Sunday? I don't have to. I just pray to God by myself in my own home. Why should I go to the temple to celebrate the Passover? I don't have to. I'll just be in my home, pray to God. Never mind, he told me to go there. Made it a duty, a sacred one. Never mind what God says. I'll tell God what to do. God, you got it all wrong. You don't need the church. No, 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 no. All you need is you and me. You see, when people say, what do I have to go to, to church? I mean, where do you start? The depth of ignorance of the faith is so profound you can't just try to explain to them, well, you have to go to church because the church says so. Well, who's the church? What do I care? Right? So it, it denotes that this kid has been abandoned. This kid is theologically orphan. This kid had no one to minister to him and love him in charity and truth and give him the truth for him to rejoice and be excited about the church. Yeah? So they didn't. Well, God... Treated them accordingly. Oh, you want a king like everybody else. Okay. You admire Babylon. Okay. Then to Babylon you go. He shipped them to Babylon. Oh, Middle Eastern Christians. You all want, all want to be Westerners. Oh, you only want to have three kids. And make sure they're all doctors and lawyers and rich. Oh, you want business. You want to be like the Americans. Okay, to America you go. You get it? Yeah? I'm hoping that through all of this, we're going to shed the sort of victim attitude. It's these evil Muslims. Don't get me wrong. What the Muslims are doing, what these crazy guys are doing over there is evil. There's no doubt about it. Not a second. But as long as we keep this notion of victimization, they're the powers, they're the powerful guys, we're just the weak guys. We're missing the point. We're not turning to God like Daniel did asking forgiveness for our sins and the sins of our people. And saying, Lord, we have sinned before you. We've contracepted. We've aborted. We wanted to be like the rich guys. We stopped having kids because we got scared. We stopped believing in you. I have seven kids. We're talking about university right now. If I look at it, each of my kids is going to cost me $40,000 every year. I don't have that money. Okay, I don't have the money. But you know what? I know someone who does. God is very rich. And he's not stingy. And I already told him way back when, I can't put money aside for the kids for school. I can't. It's a choice between putting money aside for one kid or bringing another one in the world. Well, I know what his preference is. It's obvious. Okay, I'll do that. Now you take care of the education. Or he's going to do it. I don't know how, but he's going to take care of it. I'm not concerned. You understand? We live our life by faith. We trust in Him. And the way my wife puts it is really simple. Well, He's taken care of us all the way till now. He's not going to drop us. It's not like, you know, He's going to stop. I have no clue how He's going to do it. But I'm not concerned. He's going to do it. That's all. But all of us collectively, we stop that. No, 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 no. It's too difficult. How can we do that? Because we're on our own. We have to do it ourselves. God has nothing to do with it. He's abandoned us. We're orphans. The Jews did it. The same story. No different. 
Never mind, never mind that our ancestors didn't have dishwashers, didn't have antibiotics, didn't have fridges, didn't have electricity, running water, um, cars, roads. Never mind any of this stuff. But, of course, they were ignorant. They had ten kids because they didn't have any choice. They didn't know how to do it any other way. What can we say? Well, maybe there were some who were thinking this way. I, I'll grant you that. But you know what? I think they were far more generous than we are. They knew the meaning of generosity. Way better than we do. Okay. Now, the Lord himself sent the destroyer, the destroying angel. Psalm 78, verse 49. He let loose on them his fierce anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. And also, obviously, it is the Lord himself. When you see the angel of the Lord, it is an expression to indicate the Lord himself. Right? So it's not like something happened in which he was completely disconnected. He did it. And usually, the angels, the angelic order, runs the universe. And it's through them that all of this happens. 2 Samuel 24, 15, 16. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Okay? No, it was not coincidence that Katrina happened. And I've heard so many people say, well, no, God is merciful. He wouldn't do something like that. But I don't know what God you believe in, because Scripture says otherwise. Or maybe that God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. The Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the, when the angel stretched forth his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented of the evil. That's an anthropomorphism saying that effectively God stayed the power of the angel. And said, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruha the Jebusite. was really close. I hope that when you hear passages like this, your respect and veneration to the angelic order will go up by an inch at least. These are powerful beings. Their power is something we cannot even begin to comprehend. And every time an angel appeared in Scripture, every time an angel appeared of Scripture, the humans who were there were flat on their faces, with one exception. Every time, including John, St. John himself, St. John, the beloved of God, twice in the book of Apocalypse, he fell down at the feet of an angel to, to worship him. So great was the glory of the angel. And obviously the only exception is Our Lady. Now, the implication of this feast. What is the implication? Let's, let's follow St. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in his first letter. St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to the whole chapter, I'm going to read it to you. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and of a kind that is not found even among pagans. Leave it to the Catholics. For a man is living with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. What does removed is? What do you think the word he used is? What do you think the word, the technical word St. Paul used would be? Excommunicated. How could the Catholic Church, well, listen to St. Paul. He's talking as a bishop. He cannot abide immorality among the people of God. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment. He's a bishop. He pronounces judgment. In the name of the Lord Jesus, 
on the man who has done such a thing when you're assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. That's the power of a bishop. Okay. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What is he saying? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What is he saying? What does that mean? Translation. The destruction of the flesh doesn't doesn't imply necessarily death. It implies torment. Let Satan torment him. He understood the way the Lord uses Satan to torment even his people for the destruction of the flesh. Meaning what? In this case, when he says the flesh, what is he meaning? You think his body? Remember, what do we say? What are the three areas of temptation? The flesh, the world, and the devil. Okay, when we say the flesh, do we mean our noses? Is this, you know, right here, the, the cartilage in my nose, the area of temptation for me? Is that what we mean by flesh? No, we mean the passion. So the destruction of the flesh, he means the destruction of those passions who've gone so out of bound that this guy is completely out of control. These needs to be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved. Meaning what? He can return to himself and ask for forgiveness. You get it? That's it. Let him hit. Some people need to hit real rock, real, not just rock bottom, right? Seven feet, right? Before they can kind of go, okay, that hurts. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you think he's using that image of a leaven or yeast by uh, randomly? What is he making reference to? Those prohibitions I just read to you. So the point is that the liturgy, particularly the Eucharist, cannot be separated from morality. Yeah? You can't come to the liturgy or to the Eucharist not thinking about morality, meaning the virtues. The two are connected. Sobriety, it is said, is the fruit of holiness. Sobriety is the fruit of holiness. How do we acquire holiness? Reception of the Eucharist in a state of grace. That leads us to be sober, controlling our passions. Yeah? He's very, St. Paul is scandalized because they're allowing this man to live in them and celebrate with them and they're boasting and they're all happy going to church together with a guy who is alone going to cause their entire perdition. That's what he said. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What is the lump? All of you. The whole church. Yeah? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. You see the connection? He's thinking immediately about the Passover. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. What festival? The church festival, you think? Okay, no. What is he having in mind when he says the festival? I just said, I alluded to it a little earlier. The feast of unleavened bread that began at the end of the night of Passover and extended for 14 days. That's the festival. The feast of unleavened bread in which every firstborn was claimed to God. That's the festival he has in mind. Yeah? So one leads to another. The reception of the Eucharist leads to consecration to God and a life of holiness. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. So if you have friends who can't stop from swearing, who watch pornography, who are into this and that and the other, and who have a vicious attitude, meaning an attitude leading to vice, I only have one word for you. Dump them. They're no friends. Doesn't mean you have to be uncharitable towards them. It doesn't mean you have to be abrupt or cut away completely, but you do not associate with them during the time where they're enjoying themselves. Okay? And please, please, do not fall to the temptation of thinking that you're there to save them. Oh, I'm, I'm there to have a good influence on them. I even had heard a father telling me that he allowed his son to go to a beach party. I'm talking about a 16-year-old with guys and girls because he can be a good influence on them. Well, that's very maybe innocent or foolish. I don't know. Very nice on his part. But the truth of the matter is the chances that this one kid can influence a party at the beach is extremely slim. And how do we know that? I know of no apostle and no saint who went to a beach party to preach to those who were enjoying themselves. It doesn't work this way. Be sober. Be wise. Associate only with men who are godly. You understand? And you know, don't take it from me. Take it from St. Saint, Saint Paul. Huh? Okay. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But rather I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So notice St. Paul. He's way, way ahead of us. He's, not, he's saying, I'm not worried that you're going to associate with the really bad guys out there. I'm saying to you, if there is one who bears the name of a brother, okay, if he's guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber, not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. Yeah, look at your... Friends, and actually God, in His wisdom and love, does that for you, actually. This is part of the package. As soon as you really straighten up your lives, and you start following Him, and you take your faith seriously, and you start living it, what happens to you? Especially if you start having kids, lots of them. What happens to you? The family gets on your case. What? Don't you know how to control that? Is there something wrong with you? Don't you love your wife? You get all that nonsense, and bit by bit, you find that you really don't have much in common with these people. And bit by bit, your friendship and the people you associate with change on its own. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.